Tarkington, the lead pastor of First Baptist Orange Park, and this is our Good Friday service from April 19th, 2019, featuring seven pastors, each speaking on one of the final words of Christ on the cross. I'll introduce our speakers tonight, and then once we get started, we're just going to go right through this order, and, and I know God's going to be glorified, and you're going to be blessed through this. These men are all good friends of mine. Their uh, willingness to come tonight and to, and to preach and and to bring uh, family and congregations and friends with them is, is something I do not minimize at any point. Uh, I've known uh, each of these for, um, uh, well, different amounts of time. But I can tell you these are godly men God is using in our city to engage the community and to grow the church to make us uh, more holy. I know that God is using us. So Barry Townsend, Barry is going to come here in just a few moments. Barry's the pastor of Elevation Church, and uh, we are honored to have him. He's going to bring a good word tonight. And Russell Franklin, uh, Russell is here in Green Coast, in Clay County, boy, Green Coast Springs, Hickory Grove Baptist Church. And Russell will come next. I will bring the, the third word tonight, and then following that, Brian Hoffman. Brian is a pastor at Oak Harbor Baptist Church, one of our network churches. And then Rick Wheeler. Rick has preached here before and numerous times, and he is our lead missional strategist for the Jacksonville Baptist Association. We are honored to have him uh, preach this evening. And then Pastor Elijah Simmons, good friend from Norwood Community Church. Our last uh, pastor preaching this evening will be Andres Lavanderos, one of our, our staff here at Creek Church. Praise the Lord, everybody. Greetings. Pray for me. I've never done this before. God is so good. Amen. Amen. Listen, I need to redeem my time now. <laughs> Lord, help me in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs> Listen, this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful celebration. Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they came to get him, the Roman soldiers. And Jesus wanted to know from them, why, do, why are you coming for me in the middle of the night? I preached in the synagogues all day. You could have came and got me when the sun was up. And they drug him from court to court, from Herod to Pilate, and back to Pilate and Herod. And, and they decided to let a real criminal go and crucify Jesus. And they whipped him. It wasn't like your grandmother would do how she would spank you. But they were professionals that beat Jesus with canine tails and bone and, 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 and metal on the end. And every time they whipped Jesus, the skin would rip from his bones. It's all through the night. And, and then they spit in his face and they put a bag over his head and they smote him and they said... If you're a prophet, prophesy who hit you. Then they drug him down to De La Vela Rosa. They drug him from the city up to Calvary. And on the way, dehydrated, his heart was rushing. He was in shock. On the way, these women were wailing and wailing. And he said, don't weep for me, but weep for your children and yourselves. Because it's going to come a time when you're going to say, Blessed are the wombs that never bear, and blessed are the paps that never gave suck. If they'll do this in green tree, what would they do when it's dry? 
And they hoisted Jesus up on that cross, not the throne, crown of thorns on his head. They hoisted him up there and those big spike nails in his wrists and in his feet. And they railed on him. You saved a whole bunch of people. You saved a lot of people. Save yourself. And, and he was on the cross. And it wasn't like that picture that's at my grandma's house with this real nice looking white dude with long hair. But they stripped him down naked to shame him. Crucifixion between two real criminals. And his mother was down there observing everything. And John, the one whom Jesus loved. And Jesus looked at everybody who had a part in this deal. And this is what he said. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He didn't just die for the people of that time. He knew that my mom would one day meet my dad. And they would have number five out of eight named Barry. And even though one day I would go my own way, Jesus knew that the word was in me and I would need a savior to call upon. So thank you, Jesus, for forgiving the whole world. God bless you. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 23. You've already heard the first set of phrases, uh, Father, forgive them. What a powerful truth that is to know as Jesus looks upon those who weren't just nailing him or had nailed him to the cross, but everyone who was responsible, past, present, and future, us. And we have been extended this forgiveness. But on the cross, on either side of him, Jesus had two criminals. As you look in Matthew and Mark's accounts, both of these criminals were mocking Jesus. Both of them were making fun of him and mocking his, his power, who he says he was, and all of those things. And something happened, though, to one of those criminals. Look with me in a very powerful passage. As you look in verse 39, then one of the criminals who was hanged, blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed just, just, justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Something happened, didn't it? As he was there walking, as he was there being crucified, as he was there on one side of Jesus and the other criminal on the other side of Jesus, he is angry at his own crimes that he's committed, that he has been found guilty and judged and now crucified, this one who is hanging in the middle has, has done nothing wrong and has been the same condemnation that he has, and yet there's something about what he has claimed 
what he has been preaching and teaching all this time. It's been known. Everyone's heard about Jesus and what he has been saying and preaching and doing. Oh my goodness gracious, just a few days earlier, as Christ was entering into Jerusalem, maybe they were hearing those shouts of Hosanna. Maybe they were observing this from where they were kept. We don't know. Maybe they then later on could hear in the distance a few days later, crucify him. Crucify him. We don't know. But something happened as this criminal is hanging there. He goes from mocking and blaspheming to silence. He's observing. He's watching. He's seeing. He's being convicted by the Holy Spirit of God and the one criminal's continuing to blaspheme, and all of a sudden he says, Wait, I, I deserve this. I deserve this cross. This man does not. We see the grace of God pour down upon this criminal. The Holy Spirit of God has redeemed the heart of a blaspheming man. He did not have a chance to to see or hear the messages of Jesus, to see the powerful displays of who he was. He didn't know Jesus in that way. All he knows of Jesus is that he's crucified with me, but he's done nothing to deserve it. And yet I've done everything so horribly wrong in my life, and this is what I get. You see, the Roman government condemned this man to death and had no mercy on him. He was given the charge of a criminal, of a thief, and was given the sentence of crucifixion. But God had grace and God had mercy. That though the Roman government had none, he found plenty of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. He looks at Jesus. Remember me when you come to your kingdom. He's confessing. He says, to the Lord Jesus. Look at those words. He says, Lord, remember me. He confesses Jesus as Lord. He believes. Now, Christ has not been raised from the dead, but it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. So that resurrection's coming, but Jesus in his power and sovereignty says, this day, this day, you, your physical body will be hanging on this cross, but your soul will join me in paradise. You see, this, this is the grace of God. As we look at someone who deserves everything that we get in life, as far as judgment, as far as hell, if it weren't for the grace of God and Jesus Christ, that's exactly where we would end up. Because of the wonderful love of Christ, that Jesus has died for this criminal on the cross, just as he's died for me, and just as he has died for you. I'm reminded of the song we just sung a little bit ago. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Please pray with me.
Father God, we do thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your mercy displayed on an old rugged cross. And may we turn to you as that sinner on that cross turned to you. May we look to you and survey that wondrous cross and call out to you. For those in this room who've never surrendered their life to you, may you convict them tonight to trust you as Lord and Savior, just as that thief did on that cross. We thank you for your truth and for your holy word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Reading from John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. I read that, and I remember as a child reading that, and even as a young adult, and and thinking of, of the, the fact that if I ever address my mom as woman, <laughs> that would not end well. don't know if any of you have a story similar to that, but uh, when I first read that, I'm thinking, that just seems out of place. That doesn't seem very nice. That doesn't seem very honoring. And yet, that's, that's a transliteration of that word. And, and it is an honoring word that Jesus uses at this point. When I think about Mary, it, Mary is, a, is an important character in the Scripture. She is an important character in the biblical narrative. I think sometimes as Baptists and evangelicals, we might fear talking too much about her for fear that, that we may um, elevate her as others have higher than she should be. I think sometimes the fear of elevating her to a place that she shouldn't be leaves us ignoring her and not recognizing or acknowledging her, her part and her place in this story. To ignore her is to ignore someone that was very dear to Jesus Christ. To ignore her is to, to ignore someone that was used by God, not a perfect woman, not, 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 a, not a sinless person, but a godly woman, for God's story and for God's glory, and a woman of deep and incredible faith. We have an interaction here between Christ and his mother, and if Jesus is somewhere around age 33, the expectation is that, that uh, Mary is somewhere in her mid, uh, late 40s, maybe early 50s at this point. She's likely a widow, based on the fact we don't see Joseph in the narrative until uh, after the temple story. This interaction between Christ and his mother at this moment of despair, at least for her, we looking at the words from Christ to his mother, but think of the vision from that hillside from mama on her little boy, on her firstborn. After watching what they have said about him and what they have done to him. Those in the room today, and I, I know sadly there are some of you as parents who have had the, the tragic reality of outliving your children. I look at this story and I just thought, well, let's look at a few more Mary passages. Luke chapter 1, 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, is featured in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46 following her meeting with her relative Elizabeth, 
and her praise to the Lord put to song. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, it says she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. See, I always have a connection between Easter and Christmas. I can't just connect, disconnect them. It's all one story here. But I love this passage at the temple. If you need a realization of the humanness of Mary, you get it in Luke chapter 2. If you want an illustration of We all know that Jesus is fully divine, but I think sometimes we forget that He is fully human. That is the mystery of the second person of the Trinity. Though He was sinless, He was still a junior higher. And in Luke 2, 48, it says, When His parents saw Him, they were astonished. Remember, He had been lost to them in their caravan. They had to go back to the city to find Him. That young child who was sinless and had had forgotten, apparently, to tell mom and dad where He was supposed to be. Uh, I don't know if you grew up where when the lights come on, you have to be in the house. Well, the lights came on, and, and Jesus wasn't in the house. He wasn't in the caravan. We thought He was with someone else. And mom and dad are panicking, and they run back to the city. They find Him in the temple, hanging out with the elders of the temple and the teachers of the temple, teaching them, lo and behold... And when she sees him, it says in Luke 2, 48, his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been... Now, dad's been brought into this. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Oh, look what you've done to your mother. (laughs) Then there's the wedding. The Jewish mama shows up again. John 2, verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana, at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother said to him, of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's not just a declarative statement. That's mama saying, get to work. You need to bring the wine. There are others. We can go all day. These are, these are some stories that, that shows the humanness of Mary and the relationship between Mary and Jesus, the relationship between mother and son. Yeah, Jesus, divine, sinless, son of God, son of man. And we see him here with his mother. We see that Jesus' mother, Mary, was not unlike other moms. She loved her boy. She had expectations of him. She worried for him when she could not find him. And as we see at the remainder of the wedding passage, though her son was Jesus, son of God, she was honored by him when he did what she had asked. And then on the cross, he says, woman. And that is not a term of rudeness. What that is, is a term of distance. It is a polite distance. And he used it to address her in John 2, 4 and again from the cross. Jesus' honoring words to his beloved mother was distant in that he was handing her over to his beloved disciple John. often wonder what James thought of this. But John was there and James wasn't. James wasn't his son, child of God yet. John would treat her as his own mother and she would treat him as her own son. This is a strange statement from the cross, but it reminds us that even in death, Jesus came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it. His care for his mother fulfills the command to honor one's parents, even unto death. Scripture reads, There was darkness over all the land, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, 
Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We, we read these words and they're hard to understand. We cannot begin to emulate the, the volume or the passion or the anguish, the suffering in which they were first expressed. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! We heard these words, they are hard to understand. You might even be asking yourself tonight, what does this even mean? How can the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who at this point in eternity knew only perfect union with the Father, cry out that He had been forsaken? The one who John tells us was with God from the beginning and was in fact God Himself. Certainly a mystery. One theologian calls this one of the most impenetrable mysteries of the entire Gospel narratives. The passage will go on to say that the earth begins to shake and bodies are spewn out of the ground. The sky is darkened. It's almost as if the tension between the Father and the Son is tearing apart the fabric of space and time. Certainly a mystery. What do we know about this passage? Well, we know that the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that the Father turns His back on the Son, but we do know that a most holy God does not look upon sin. Habakkuk tells us that his eyes are too pure to behold evil. We know at this moment in time that the sins of humanity are placed on Jesus' shoulders. Sins, past, present, future, your sin, my sin. Isaiah says that He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those sins He bore, my friends, or an offense. An offense to a holy God demands judgment. Judgment demands wrath. Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death. Our payment that was due to us for our sin against God was death. And Jesus Christ hangs on a cross taking the wrath of the Father forsaken for our sin. Totally abandoned. Deserted by His closest friends. Shunned by society. Forsaken by the Father. Taking His wrath. Wrath initially owed you and I. There's a term in the military. Nemo residio. It means no one left behind. Why? Because in battle, your comrades, dead or alive, will not be left behind because we understand how awful it is to be forsaken. That's why we love movies like Missing in Action or, or Rambo. Because we understand in our heart of hearts how awful it is to be left behind. But we also understand in our hearts how beautiful it is to be redeemed. And Jesus voluntarily becomes a curse forsaken by the Father because on that cross He knew two things. He knew that this was the only way that you and I could be redeemed. And He knew that this, through all of this that the Father would ultimately be glorified. To the gravity of the whole situation shows us the extent of our sin. 
so deep and offensive that it was that the universe appears to be ripping itself apart on account of the wrath that's poured out in judgment. But while the force of the wrath of God that afternoon was so great, might I remind you this evening that the love that was poured out was even greater. You see, that afternoon, the wrath of God was appeased. Which allowed for the love of God to shine through. You see, just for a moment, the Father's face ceases to shine on His sons so that it might shine on ours for eternity. while we bask in the joy of salvation, if you have placed your faith in Christ and the One who was forsaken on the cross that afternoon, we bask in the joy of salvation. Let us never forget tonight that Christ's mission, first and foremost, was the glory of God the Father. As He prayed in the garden, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that He may glorify You. You see that afternoon at Calvary, the Father was glorified in the judgment of sin. The Father was glorified in the salvation of sinners. The Father was glorified in bringing to fruition one of the most important moments in all of history. I would say second to the resurrection. The Father was glorified as He tore the veil forsaking His Son allowing us to have access to His throne. Through His Son, Jesus Christ. Christ hangs on that cross. I could imagine, maybe in exchange, as He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? The Father with His back turned so that sinners may be saved and that I might be glorified. And Jesus Christ, in complete and utter obedience, as I understand. My friends, that's my question tonight. Do you understand? Do do you understand why we're here this evening? Do you understand what Good Friday is all about? Do you know why it's so good? Do you understand the cross this evening? Please, I beg you, do not leave here tonight without knowing the One who was forsaken for our sin. Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 28. So we come to this saying of Jesus that is probably, I believe, the saying that we can all relate to because we all know the experience of thirst. Some of you know that my wife and I are uh, fostering two small children, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. What I can tell you having not had a four-year-old and a two-year-old in our home for a while, is they are always thirsty. (laughs) I want a drink. Can I have a drink? Not just any drink. I want this particular drink in this particular sippy cup that's a particular color. (laughs) And we always give them this drink because the consequences are great if you don't. But we want them to be hydrated. 
Our bodies are about 70% water. And scientists tell us that, that when we are prompted to thirst, that by that time we're probably already a quart low. But as we look at this passage, we can see that Jesus was not only speaking about physical thirst. Look there in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. This was not the first time Jesus had the opportunity to get something to drink. At the beginning of the crucifixion, it says in Mark's gospel that he was offered something but refused it. The wine he drank now at this moment was not the same kind of wine. This is a common, uh, usually it's what a common wine. It's usually what the soldiers or common people would drink. It tasted much like vinegar. This was not a good tasting drink. Jesus was not interested in the quality of the drink, please hear me, but in fulfilling every word of Scripture. As you've heard by now, it is clear that on the cross, the Psalms were on Jesus' mind. And in this particular moment, he is thinking of Psalm 69. And so he asked for this drink because he wanted to fill the words of Psalm 69, verse 3, where it says, I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched. And again in verse 21 of Psalm 69, it says, They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus' whole life had been spent fulfilling these scriptures. The Word of God motivated and directed him. It gave him power. It gave him strength in everything he did. And it would be no different right here on the cross. Tim Keller says this, When you pricked Jesus Christ, when you stabbed Jesus Christ, he literally bled scripture. He knew the scripture so well that... He thought about the Scripture so pervasively, it so saturated and so permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him instinctively. The Scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith all happened because he was saturated in Scripture. Yes, he was thirsty. But the reason he says he is thirsty was to show everyone, including us here tonight, that here on the cross, He is fulfilling the Father's will and every word of Scripture. So Jesus fulfilled the Scripture. Now I want to look at the actual saying itself, I thirst. I thirst. Did you notice that it's one of the shortest sayings that we're exploring here tonight? And while these are two words in the English translation that we have, it's one word in the original Greek, the word dipso. And there are some derivatives of this word in other parts of the scripture, but there's only one place in the New Testament where this particular word is used. It's also found in John's gospel earlier. In John chapter 4, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and it's also Jesus' lips saying this word. He says it to an encounter, to a woman that he encountered in Samaria at a well. He uses this word to describe the living water that he was offering to her, and eventually she accepts. John 4, verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst indeed. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I believe there is a connection 
from the time at the well in Samaria to this moment here on the cross where Jesus is experiencing great physical thirst. Jesus knows he's fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures on the cross, but he's also fulfilling the promise of the purchase of eternal life so that you and I would never again be in spiritual want or thirst again. Because he endured this thirst, this intense thirst, he could now give us the gift of eternal life. That is the gospel. That is good news. Because of his thirst, we are satisfied. Because of his need, we have provision. At the moment of this saying, the end was near. Eternity is now in full view. It says he knew. He knew that all things were now accomplished. So Jesus says, I thirst. And I, I believe he has in mind this moment with the woman at the well in Samaria. And every single person, every single person who will drink of this water that his sacrifice on the cross will provide. That's what makes Good Friday good. You may have come in here tonight thirsty, friend. Maybe not just physically thirsty, but spiritually you're in need of renewal. You're in need of life because it's dead inside. However you came in here tonight, you can find. Look to the cross, my friend. And there you will find the one, the only one, who will satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. And for those of us who drink daily from this well, please hear me. Remember, there are thirsty people all around us. People who Jesus said they are the last and the least. And when you feed them and when you clothe them and when you take care of them, you're taking care of me. And there are those of us who know where to find this water. But you know, there are others who don't. And as people who are thirsty, who have found the source of living water, may we be the ones who tell other thirsty people where to find the water. Our attention this week was taken to Paris as we saw the Notre Dame Cathedral in flames. Even if we've never been there, we probably felt a bit of sadness and a, and a sense of loss. And watching that, my mind then went, of course, to the Sixteenth Chapel. A beautiful structure. The architecture is beautiful, but the art inside of it is amazing. If you've ever seen the inside, there is a ceiling there that was painted by Michelangelo. It is a work of art. It was, in fact, his greatest creation. He, of course, was also a sculptor, so he sculpted, of course, the statue of David, as well as one of Moses, but it was there inside the Sistine Chapel where he did his greatest work. What most people don't realize, however, is that Michelangelo left a lot of work undone. If you were to go to his hometown of Florence and were to go to the church there, you would find in the storage room a collection of the unfinished works of Michelangelo. In fact, on balance, he left more work unfinished than he had finished. I bring that up tonight because we serve a God that's the exact opposite. Jesus didn't leave anything unfinished. In John chapter 19 and verse 30, the word of God says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, 
He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Those words are exciting, but in order to be excited about it, you have to know what he was talking about. So what was finished? Was it the agony of the crucifixion? We can see it here in the text. As you read the text, you can hear them cursing Jesus. As you read the text, you can feel the blows that came against his body. We can see the agony in scripture. And so was he saying that the agony was finished? He had physical agony but he also had spiritual agony. My brother has already talked about it, but there was a time where the father turned his back on his son and put our sins on him so that we may be redeemed. And so was it the physical agony or the spiritual agony? Or was it even agony at all? Was it his assignments that were finished? If you remember in John chapter four, Jesus said early on, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And at this time, three years worth of ministry is about to come to a close. It began with fasting and a fight with Satan. It went on throughout there where he picked disciples. He healed those who were sick. He took demons out of those who were demon-possessed. He even brought back to life those who had died. He preached to listening ears. He gave parables to those that he wanted to teach. And now, after all of that time, this ministry was coming to a close. And what's he saying? It is finished. My assignments are done. But I suggest it wasn't his assignments. And it wasn't his agony that he was talking about. It was the atonement. Because there was a specific assignment that Jesus had that he was sent here to accomplish. And it was the atonement for you and I. It was the forgiveness of our sins. And so as he sat on that cross and said, it is finished, he was talking about our atonement. Now, in order to understand this word and what Jesus was saying, you have to understand that in the Greek, it is one word, tetelestai. This is the word that was used when a promissory note was paid in full. It's the word that was used when a, when a deed transaction was completed and land was transferred from one person to another. It is the word that was used when a son would go out on mission and come back before his father who would ask, is it done? And the son would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And so when Jesus said those words, he was saying about our redemption, it is finished. That the note has been paid in full. That we no longer belong to Satan. There's been a transfer of ownership that the son had fulfilled what his father had sent him out to do. And so he could say those words to Telestai, it is finished. Hebrews 9 and 12 puts this succinctly. It says, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, he entered the most holy place once for all time and secured our redemption forever. What he said that day was a promise for you and I. But it also spoke about who he was. Ludolf van Selwyn was a Dutch mathematician. He is the one that figured out that mathematical constant of pi. He's the one we can blame for having to deal with it. <laughs> he was so proud of it that it became his epitaph. And so on his tombstone, was 3.145926 down to 35 digits long. Because anyone that came, he wanted them to see what he was most proud of. Martin Luther King Jr. had an epitaph, and it was free at last, free at last. 
Thomas Jefferson had an epitaph. His epitaph said, author of the Declaration of Independence, founder of the University of Virginia. I believe that Jesus had an epitaph. And I think we see it in John 19 and verse 30. We don't have to search far, but, but if he was to have an epitaph, I believe that it would be Tetelestai. It is finished. Thank you, Pastor David, for letting me preach. And uh, thank you, my brothers. And thank you for putting me after Pastor Elijah as well. <laughs> Luke 23, 46. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. No time to waste, so the first struggle of the, the verse is the fact that God doesn't have hands. God is a spirit. He's not a human. This is anthropomorphic language. Because the Bible was written so that humans can know about God, not so that God can know about himself. The Bible was written so that finite brains like ours can know and study an infinite God. So we find that Jesus says here, into your hands, although God does not have hands. Placing something into someone's hands speaks to entrusting someone with some type of exchange. A greeting, we're exchanging a greeting, a business deal, or a life or lives, you're placing them in someone's hands. Hands in our culture have a lot of symbolism. Hands in the Bible, the Bible speaks a lot about hands. The great truth is that in the right hands, things can be forever transformed. If you were to give me some chicken and a pile of vegetables, I could probably microwave some chicken fajitas. <laughs> I was just born with that ability. But if, you, but if you give that same chicken and vegetables to a guy named Emerald, he would cook up a masterpiece in his hands. If you give me a couple paintbrush and three main colors, I could probably draw some really cute stick figures. But if you gave the same paintbrushes and the same colors to a Leonardo da Vinci, he would paint up a masterpiece. If you gave me a basketball, I could probably defend myself and probably beat Pastor Tarkenton, no problem. But, but if you gave a basketball to a Michael Jeffrey Jordan, you would see greatness on display. If you gave me a piano, I could probably get away with Mary Had a Little Lamb. But if you gave that same piano to Ludwig van Beethoven, you would hear beauty and a masterpiece in the hands. Allow me in the next quick moments to share this verse, but not from our perspective, from the perspective of the Trinity. And let me give it to you very quickly. Number one, Jesus volunteered to die for the sins of the world. My friend, as we reflect on Good Friday, make no mistake about it, Jesus was not murdered. Jesus gave his life willingly 
for you and for me. I don't have time to get into it, but the Bible says uh, there's this cute little verse in the scriptures where Jesus says, do you not know that I could call 12 legions of angels? If you do the math, you would know that that is some 13 uh, trillion people that the angels could have come down from heaven and wiped out every human that ever lived and every human that was to live. But Jesus said, although I could do that because I'm a son of God, I willingly give my life to you. You got to know this. Number two, Jesus modeled complete surrender and obedience. Here he says that in literally taking his last breath, he says to the father, modeling perfect obedience and surrender. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. From the moment that King Jesus was born in the manger, he was completely surrendered and obeyed the father. John says that Jesus spoke nothing unless the Father told him to speak. John chapter 8 says that Jesus did nothing unless the Father told him to do it. Complete surrender even to the very end of his life. What he says in, to your hands. And then lastly, you got to see that this was the worst six hours in the history of the Trinity. They said it so beautifully tonight. See, the truth is... The truth is, is that although Jesus in his humanity faced the pain, faced the agony, faced the suffering, the greatest suffering that Jesus faced on the cross of Calvary was separation from his Trinitarian relationship with God. We find in the Gospel of Mark that, that Jesus just praying about being separated perfectly uh, in, in, in union with, with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, just being separated nearly killed him when he was praying about it. You got to know that when, when, when darkness came over and the earthquake shook, you got to know that, that that's because the wrath of God was being poured out on Jesus Christ. See, when, when the sun came down and, and, and there was darkness and there was an earthquake, it, it wasn't God sending his wrath to the Romans or to the Jews or to the people. It was God coming down on the Son of God. This is the gospel. When Jesus said, into your hands, I commit my spirit, it would be my biblical opinion that Jesus said this. It was a business deal. It was the finalizing of a business deal. Jesus said, I'm placing my life in your hands. The price of salvation has been paid. And he... And he put his life in the Father's hand. He said the price has been paid. You see, if you're a believer here tonight, in the hands of God, you become God's masterpiece. Where he sculpts you and molds you and transforms you into his masterpiece. If you're not a believer here tonight, and like Jonathan Edwards famously preached, then you're a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Someone has to pay the price for sins. And Jesus said, I did. Tonight, I would encourage you, if you're here tonight, and you've never been born again, I'm very confident you know about Jesus. But if you've never been born again, my friends, can I plead with you tonight? Give your life to Christ.